0: Hi, this is Karen Czeses of ASCOA Online. 2018 was the most violent year on record in Mexico, and homicide stats from the first half of 2019 give few reasons for optimism about this year either. Something needs to be done. No se puede enfrentar la violencia con la violencia. No se puede enfrentar Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador campaigned with a promise to stop using the military for policing. Then, last month, he inaugurated a new force called the National Guard that he says will eventually be 150,000 strong and under civilian leadership. But is the force different from what came before?
1: The National Guard in itself is not necessarily that unique of an idea from
0: this administration. That's Cecilia Farfan-Mendez, a postdoctorate fellow at UC San Diego's Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies. She's working on a book titled Beyond Cartels and Kingpins, the Business of Drug Trafficking Organizations. In our conversation, she said there's been a pattern with Mexican presidents since the administration of Vicente Fox nearly 20 years ago.
1: They have all tried to somehow design their own security strategy, and all of them have tried to design an
0: elite force. So what's the structure of this new National Guard? And how did a force that's supposed to handle Mexico's security problems end up starting out by policing migration? We talk about these issues and the long-term mental health effects of living in a place suffering from chronic violence.
1: You're listening to Latin America in Focus.
0: Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco.
1: A podcast by America Society Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region.
0: Thank you, Cecilia, so much for speaking with me today. No, thank you for having me. Okay, so let's start with some background. The administration of Felipe Calderon dispatched the military in 2006 to confront drug trafficking organizations in Mexico. And so for 12 years since then, and through two presidencies, that's essentially been the status quo. Now, over time, I've seen various numbers around this, but some estimates suggest that more than 200,000 people have died and another 40,000 people have gone missing over the course of this drug war. And when current president Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador was running, he said he was going to return the military to the barracks. But then just before he took office, he announced the creation of a National Guard, and he then inaugurated that force at the end of June. So just to start, let's get down to the basics. What is the National Guard, and why did the AMLO government create it?
1: So the short answer for that is the National Guard is sort of a hybrid force that is supposed to have civilian rule, but with uh, military training. And the idea is that because of the crisis of violence that Mexico is going through, there was the need for an elite force that would be able to deal with this. The long answer is that this hybrid force is very controversial in Mexico, and especially for those who study Uh, violence and crime, and for the reasons that you have pointed out. The last 12 years have shown that more military deployment across the country does not necessarily reduce the levels of violence. So really the concern is that instead of having a victim-centered approach, which was something that the AMLO administration discussed while in campaign and during the transition of his government before they took office, in reality what we're seeing is further militarization of public safety in Mexico and what that brings in terms of violations of human rights.
0: So when you say a, a, a victim-centered approach, what would a victim-centered approach look like instead? I think at the beginning of his
1: campaign or during his campaign and even during the transition period, uh, the administration say, you know, we don't want to have a reactive policy against organized crime. We don't necessarily want to have or follow this kimping strategy, meaning let's target alleged top leaders of organizations in the hopes that this will reduce violence. Let's focus on bringing justice to victims. And so during those months before he took office, you know, after he was elected and before he took office, that they had these sort of town hall meetings across the country meeting with um, the families uh, of victims. They try to, I think, create a sense that it was more about bringing justice. So when the National Guard was announced, it really reversed that message and said, well, perhaps it's not going to be so victim-centered, and we're really going to focus on this sort of hardline approach of having uh,
0: armed personnel deployed across the country. So one thing that you have looked at in your research is is drug trafficking organizations and you made a reference to this that there was this idea of where we're going to shift our our policy we're going to shift our strategy away from just going after kingpins or what that might be Um, what I'm curious about is how has the scenario changed on the ground in Mexico in terms of violence and insecurity since this started 12 years ago since this drug war started and how does the scenario on the ground make the National Guard more or less equipped to handle the problem?
1: I think you pose a very challenging question, um, but let me, let me break it down a little bit. So in terms of um, what we see of organized crime, certainly, you know, it has changed over the last 12 years. So one thing that, you know, sort of scholars and experts agree on is that there has been a diversification of criminal activities. Meaning that, you know, organized crime is not solely focusing on drug trafficking, but we see other activities, you know, like oil theft or huachicoleo, as is known in Mexico. We see higher levels of extortion. We also see kidnapping. Why this has happened, there's less consensus. Um, However, we do know that there are more sort of criminal opportunities out there that perhaps were uh, or existed uh, 12 years ago. So on the one hand. We still have drug trafficking, which is not new to Mexico and certainly did not start in 2006. Uh, in addition, we have other activities like uh, increase in extortion and kidnapping. And you know you just have more organizations entering this criminal scenario that may not be as sophisticated as other groups and may use violence in different ways. So if I want to extort you, I I need you to believe me that I will be very violent unless you comply with what I'm saying. So I will use violence in a different way than if I were just a drug trafficker. So on the one hand, who is you know who are the criminal actors has changed. The criminal activities that happen across the country and how widespread have also changed. Now, how does the National Guard come into this? What's interesting is that in my research, as you point out, one thing that comes up is that the violence that we see across the country is not the same for every region. And it's not only not the same, but also how people experience this violence also varies. So being a woman in a rural context is very different from being a woman in a city, or being a kid, or being an old man, in terms of how you experience this violence. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the victimization service uh, published by INEGI or Mexico's uh, National Statistic Institute, we see that really people are afraid about withdrawing cash from an ATM. So if the fear is about me, you know, going out on the street at night or having my children being able to, you know, go out at night, the National Guard is not really equipped to solve that concern that the population has. You know, the fears that are expressed in this victimisa- victimization service are not about the big drug traffickers. They're not about... El Chapo or El Mayo, they're about, you know, the ability to get on public transportation without being, you know, robbed. And so how the National Guard is going to fix this, it really is unclear, you know, how deploying personnel,
0: uh, military personnel uh, across the country can solve this. Two, two things about that. One is that a big pressure point for AMLO, who's very popular right now, is going to be violence. It's A, a lot of people say that it's going to be, have, have to be one of the areas that he's going to have to deliver on first. And it's something that you hear a lot here in Mexico that um, when it comes right down to it, the most important thing is I want to be able to get on the bus at the end of the day and know I'm going to make it home, right? So um, one thing that you've touched on a little bit in some of your other answers is also this idea of the National Guard under um, civil leadership. Um, There has been some framing of the National Guard as sort of like a civil force, but it is made up largely of members of the armed forces. Um, So is it a civil force or not? And to what degree is it accurate to, to try to make it, to describe it as a as a civil force. I think the current administration
1: would very much make the case that this is a civil force because it's under civilian rule. However, if we actually look at the details of how it's operating and how it's intended to work, it's not really clear that it's really a civilian force. And so let me explain this a little bit. The National Guard in itself is not necessarily that unique of an idea from this administration to the extent that previous administrations, and if we think, you know, 20 years ago with Vicente Fox when he was president, they have all tried to somehow design their own security strategy and all of them have tried to design an elite force that somehow is going to be really, you know, the distinguished law enforcement agency that will be able to really provide security to the country. What the, what's the significant departure here from previous administrations is that we're seeing that these force, you know, these National Guard would actually have members of the armed forces, whereas previously um, that was not the case. And so what this administration has announced is that for the first 2 years they want to be able to recruit 50,000 new members but really how the national guard is going to come together is from members of the of sedena which is mexico's defense ministry from semar which is mexico's um navy and also the federal police and to this day, reports show that really, they have not been able to recruit that many civilians. And it's really members uh, of the military and the Navy who will comprise the majority of this National Guard. So it's really a transfer, you know, almost of name of who, you know, who is a National Guard. Well, right now is, you know, military personnel that will now operate under the name National Guard, but who were trained uh, by the armed forces. So in the implementation. We're not really seeing a civilian force. We really see,
0: you know, and personnel from the armed forces under a new brand. And just to go over some of the numbers, I know that when the National Guard was inaugurated at the end of June, uh, the numbers were floating around that it was some a force of somewhere around 60 to 70 thousand to start. And the goal over time is that it's supposed to be a force of 150 thousand over the next four or five years, right? There's, that's the, is that right?
1: Right, so the goal is that by the end of AMLO's administration, they're going to have 150,000 personnel uh, in the National Guard, which is a very high bar in terms of recruitment. And, in, and if we think of what has happened previously with other attempts of having these sort of elite forces. And so if we think about the Gendarmeria, which was this, again, elite force that Peña Nieto wanted to have, the goal for them was to have 40,000 recruits, and in the end, I don't think they were able to you know, get more than 5,000. So how are they going to get these numbers
0: is very unclear. Over the course of the Peña Nieto government, it was sort of like they kept decreasing the estimates of how many would be would be in the force, right? It started out with 40,000, and then, no, 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 it'll be a little bit less, and they ended up with, oh, maybe we'll get to 5,000, and then suddenly you weren't hearing about the force at all. So um, speaking to that a little bit about who's going to be making up the force, very shortly after the inauguration, members of the federal police protested over being incorporated into the National Guard. Can you talk a little bit about why they were protesting? So- in the
1: process of putting together the National Guard, of course, there's sort of the questions about how they're going to do their job, and the the idea that they will also be a force that are going to be very compliant of human rights. But also, we're thinking that these come from three different agencies, essentially, right? So Mexico's uh, Defense Ministry, the Navy, and the Federal Police. There's also an administration challenge there. You know, how do you bring together these three formerly separate entities and then put them all together under the National Guard command. Mm-hmm. And so what the Federal police is saying is that unlike their counterparts uh, who are coming from the Army and the Navy, they're having to go through a process of tests and to them it is unclear you know how their seniority that they achieve within the Federal police, you know their rank, salaries, benefits, all these sort of admin questions will play out at the National Guard. And so, you know, they certainly, you know, went to social media to complain about uh, the places where the training was being conducted. You know, I think also the concern of the lack of clarity of how, you know, they can become part of the National Guard. The government has said that, you know, this is a voluntary process. Whoever from the federal police wants to be a member of the National Guard, they have up to 18 months. But certainly, you know, there is a sense that they're second-class citizens. Again, in an institution that is supposed to be uh, a civilian one, and yet uh, you have, you know, their counterparts are not having to go through the test, and you know, their salaries and benefits—all that is—is is going to remain the same for those coming from the army and the navy, but not the federal police. Interesting. So they will—they're supposed to be getting lower salaries. Just recently. Uh, Secretary Durazo, who is the Secretary of the Public Safety, the recently sort of resuscitated uh, Ministry of Public uh, Safety, uh, said, you know, they have the budget to do this. But I think, I think that's part of the concerns that members of the federal police have, you know, just the uncertainty of job security and what their roles will look like under this new national guard.
0: The inauguration of the National Guard, it also coincided with the Mexican government inking an immigration deal with the U.S. to halt tariffs, as we know. And part of that deal involved Mexico sending the National Guard, uh, particularly to the southern border um, with Guatemala, to stem the flow of Central American migrants. There there has been some presence of the National Guard uh, in the northern border as well. How does this fit into the goals of the National Guard to be involved in the process of policing migration
1: I think this is another sort of unexpected element within the security policy of this administration. So if we go back to the original announcement as to why you know the National Guard was needed the arguments made from the government were along the lines of you know we are in the middle of a crisis 2018 was the most violent year if we think about it in terms of homicides and you know the homicide rate we need to do something. And migration was never really discussed, you know, even when those experts on security and human rights observers were advancing their arguments as to why a National Guard would be problematic for Mexican security. So now, you know, it was created. There's the pushback as to, is this going this is actually going to work in terms of reducing violence. And now we see that one of the first tasks that the National Guard is involved with has to do with migration, which was definitely not discussed um, at the beginning as to why we needed a National Guard in Mexico. And so you're essentially putting a new you know, sort of law enforcement body that will be watched in terms of human rights violations very closely to enforce migration, which only increases the likelihood that you will commit um, human rights violations. So I think they have put them in a very, very tricky spot in terms of, you know, these first tasks being not really thinking about organized crime, but thinking about migration. That by deploying the National Guard for migration enforcement, that also raises a question as to how Mexico is also changing its narrative about uh, migration flows and whether they see that as something that has to be criminalized or you know something that you know mm-hmm. people have the right to move freely. So we're also, you know, the National Guard is also operating under an interesting change within Mexican politics, whereas the foreign ministry used to be the more dove-like behave when it came to migration, and the interior ministry or Sego, in Spanish, was a more hawk-like and what we're seeing in this administration is an interesting reversal of roles where the interior ministry is actually more relaxed about you know how they think about migration. And originally uh, Secretary Sanchez Cordero said, you know, all are welcome, we're going to give them work pieces. Then they reverse that. and now we see the foreign minister you know going to DC and having these conversations of being, you know what we're going to enforce uh, migration and
0: deport uh, migrants at the southern border yeah it's very interesting, especially given that you know there Mexico was under a lot of pressure in this moment of facing tariffs or facing how to handle this issue. At the same time, this was this was happening before the National Guard was fully inaugurated. So there's been a lot of confusion about these National guard forces, um, who they are, uh, even their uniforms. Uh, what what is this presence at, at the border? Um, can you talk about about that a little bit?
1: I think, um, you know, as I mentioned before, there is this sort of like bureaucratic logistics right of putting together the National Guard and especially because you're uh, merging uh, other, you know, individuals who come from different uh, agencies. And so I think, indeed, there's a lot of confusion right now in terms of, you know, who's wearing the uniform? Is it, you know, are they, you know, using equipment that belong to the Policia Federal but now they have a uniform of the National Guard? So who is where is certainly a question that um, is not as clear, even though the government announced uh, 266 regions that were going to be priority for the country in terms of the deployment of the National Guard, and 150 out of those 266 that would
0: receive immediate attention. And how do they determine that? How do they determine which is a high priority area?
1: I think they were looking
0: at hotspots
1: for violence and also thinking of homicide rates. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some of these places like Tijuana, which is in this, you know, priority list. And so some of these places are usual suspects in terms of, you know, thinking of hotspots for violence in Mexico, such as Ciudad Juarez, also Acapulco. Interestingly, this is not necessarily a new approach. Under the Peña administration, there was also, you know, under the Ministry of Interior, uh, under the prevention prevention of crime functions, you also had the development of poligonos with the idea of like the government could identify these high crime areas and then pay attention to those areas to reduce levels of violence. So you know, thinking of you know regional or regionally where violence occurs is not new to this government, but how you know which cities they ranked. They probably are different uh, in some cases from previous administrations.
0: So one thing I wanted to go back to is looking back the u s. Mexico relationship. Uh, When we're talking about all of these security issues, these are complicated issues that take time and consensus to resolve. Uh, Whether we're talking about the National Guard trying to fix everything, whether we're trying to talk about bilateral relations. Um, So one thing I was wondering is if there was one thing that you could see the U.S. and Mexico coming together on in terms of a next step to take action on violence and transnational crime, something that could have a real effect, what would it be? I mean, I think
1: right now, given what we have observed, it really comes back to, you know, going back to the basics and really keeping the channels of communication open. I think it was very problematic when the government announced that they, you know, or President Lopes, or rather specifically said that they wanted to rethink Merida. And of course, the Merida Initiative, there's a lot of room uh, to improve. And, you know, if they want a name change, you know, to sort of signal uh, new times, that's certainly something I think that no one will really oppose, either in DC or in Mexico.
0: Just to pause you for one minute, the Merida Initiative is the security initiative that was started uh, during Calderon and uh, George W. Bush's. Bush's time, right?
1: Yes, correct. Right. No, it's fine. And I think what is key here is to really keep that framework for cooperation because it's really the most advanced mechanism that both countries have to sit at the same table and also seat the relevant actors in the same table and exchange information and exchange, you know, ideas. Of course, Mexico's and the U.S. security interests are not the same for everything, but there's quite a bit of overlap. So keeping those, you know, communication channels open, I think is something that should be a priority. For this government and it's certainly something that ambassador barcena in dc has um, said that they want to do so i think you know rethinking the merit initiative is a welcome thing getting rid of it not so much and i would really advise against something um, along those lines
0: great Uh, To switch gears, one area you've studied is the role of chronic violence and depression. And so can you tell our listeners a bit about what you found in the case of Ciudad Juarez, where even when murder rates were dropping, suicide rates were rising?
1: Right. So one thing that we have seen in some of the cities where data is available, and in the case of Ciudad Juarez, is that, you know, we talk about 12 years and perhaps for some people that doesn't seem like that much uh, or that long time. But you're thinking that if you were a kid into Ciudad Juarez in 2007, and let's say you were 10 years old, you know, 10 years later, you're going to be in your 20s. And so really, uh, we're talking about, you know, young children who have lived in this context of, you know, what a colleague of mine calls chronic violence. And what that means is, you know, this Constant feeling that something's going to happen to you even if you have not been a direct victim of violence Let's say you have not been robbed or you know, you have not had the misfortune of have a violent encounter You have this constant, you know feeling that something could happen because you hear that it has happened to friends You have here that it has happened to family you hear it in the news and so really these this context has created PTSD uh, in young men and women and so you know, depression has become prevalent in these cities. And so in the case of Ciudad Juarez, we see suicide rates have gone up, even though when homicide rates have gone down. So this tells us that, you know, solving violence in Mexico goes beyond just reducing the homicide rate, that really the effects of living in this context are long lasting and something that we have to start thinking of now, you know, what will happen
0: you know, to those who were kids 10 years ago, but now are young adults. You're also speaking to an idea that this wasn't always the state of things in Mexico. We get used to the constant bombardment of bad news, of um, dire statistics around uh, murder and crime, um, and, and that there was a before to that. Um, are you seeing now that there has been enough time that's been passing under this situation some kind of steps being being taken to address some of these issues you're talking about, like PTSD, like depression. Are there any groups that are focusing on this area? I think
1: what we have seen is civil society really focusing on this. And again, going back to what the families of victims have done, uh, we see you know, what I observe is that those who have been affected by this violence certainly have done something. I don't think that public policy is quite there yet, you know, with victims and, you know, what this means. But, you know, it's interesting to see all these civil society efforts to try to cope with what's going on. But of course, it cannot just be the task of civil society. This is something that has to be in collaboration with the state. And, you know, unless there's also, this conceptualization of, you know, the public health problems that violence brings, I think once again we're going to be following a very reactive policy rather than anticipating uh, the problems that, you know, violence has created in the country.
0: Cecilia, thank you very much for taking the time and talking about these issues with me. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karin Zissis. This episode was produced by Luisa Lemmy. The music in this podcast was recorded at America Society in New York City. For upcoming concerts, visit musicoftheamericas.org. Your reviews help us spread the word. If you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe give us five stars and write us a review on itunes spotify google play soundcloud or stitcher